Thank you, Mensa. I was never very good at Lego, Nemo. Just good at scattering it around the house, like little mini bombs for anyone that might step on that. Or my mom could ride over and destroy it, and then I'm like, cool, it's broken. Next. Um, anyway, my name is James, if you haven't met me, and we're wrapping up the series called Gospel According to Acts. What are we looking at? Famous preachers that we find in the book of Acts, where people declare who God is and what He has done for us. And we're re-preaching those sermons to you guys today. Today, we're taking a look at a preach from the Apostle Paul. Last week, Simon preached on the stoning of Stephen, and you remember Paul was involved. So he went from a guy murdering Christians to a guy who was actually going to be murdered for being a Christian. This is a dramatic turnaround. And we're going to find ourselves in Acts chapter 17. And so if you want to turn there in your YouVersion app or your physical Bible, I'd encourage you to do that because we're going to slowly, verse for verse, unpack this. And it's going to be good value for you to follow along. And we're going to find three things as we unpack this passage in Acts 17. We're going to look at the messenger from verse 16 to 21. We're going to look at what Paul has to say about the unknown God in Athens from verse 22 to 23. And then we're going to take a look at what Paul has to say about the living God from verse 24 to 31. And that is the preach in proper. Um, but before we get into that, just to give you a bit of context about Athens. So you guys, if you've been to Greece, you'll know about Athens. But at this point in history, Athens was the center of education and intellect. They called their university the eye of Greece and the mother of arts. Athens is known as the city of philosophers. Socrates, Plato, other famous guys like Pythagoras. If you struggled with Pythagoras' theorem in maths, you have him to thank for it. These guys all came out of Athens. Athens is the intellectual hub. And it was a cultural hotspot and great architecture and art was known to be on display. It was a masterpiece of a city. But when Paul gets there, he has a different verdict about the city. So then let's open up Acts 17 from verse 16 together and take a look at this under the first heading, the messenger. The messenger being Paul. And we're going to see what Paul observed. We know what the world thought about Athens. This is what Paul observed. Acts 17 from verse 16 says this. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he didn't say, yes, like Mensa, look at how amazing this architecture is. Isn't it amazing? Look at this art. It's just up my alley. What genius. Can you believe this town planning? Look at all these great buildings. His summary of all the grandeur of the whole eye of the world was, I'll tell you about this city. It's full of idols. We read in the Bible that man looks at the outside, God looks at the heart. What we see with the messengers, he cuts through the human achievements, through the superficial facade, and he sees something that is drastically bad in God's eye, that this is a city full of idols. You know, there was a, a historian that came after Paul, and he wrote a six-volume work to describe how immensely great Athens is. But for all of its humanitarian achievements, Paul just says it's a city full of idols. So just to show you, he found himself in the Pantheon. That you'll, you'll see a picture coming up behind you, and you'll probably find it familiar to you. Washington, D.C. is imitated on this architecture. You might know the word pantheist. 
Pan means many in Greek and theos means God. Pantheism is the belief that there's many gods. Well, the pantheon is the place of the housing of the many gods. And we'll see that there are gods for pretty much anything imaginable in Greece. Here's a picture behind me of a building being propped up by multiple gods. Okay, so you can go to Athens, you can go to a city, and there's like literally 10 gods holding up one building. You'll see in this next picture a shrine to Athena, the Greek goddess of war. Now, this happens to be in the United States. It's been reconstructed. But imagine, yeah, it's in uh, Tennessee. Can you believe it? Kentucky Fried Chicken and Athena, the goddess of war. <laughs> Goes together like chicken and war. I don't know. Anyway, it's a reconstruction. If you saw the scale of the person to the shrine, I want you to imagine that every public place you went to in Athens had a shrine to at least one god. If you go to the courthouse, there's the god Apollo. If you go to the register house, there's another god. There's at least one shrine in every public house. Imagine you go to home affairs, you're struggling to get your admin done, and you have to stare at Athena, the goddess of war. And you're like, I will wage war if you really want me to. This is Athens. This is a city full of idols. Because every single public square was just shrines to gods. In fact, there was a saying, a colloquial saying in the area. It's easier to find a god in Athens than it is to find a man. This is a city that people think is amazing. Here's God's summary. Nope. Full of idols. My question is, how do you see Johannesburg? Do you see a city full of idols? John Stott commenting on this word full, he says it's smothered. Do you see a city smothered with idols? Because idolatry doesn't only entail when we make a shrine to a god or a goddess. Idolatry is anything that we put in the place that only God should occupy. If we rely on something in place of what only God should supply, that's an idol. So idolatry or having an idol could be that we have an obsession with people's approval that we have an obsession with chasing pleasure, sex, money, status, power, even an obsession with a person. These are idols, modern day. And I wonder, if you looked around Joburg, do you see people giving their lives for something that isn't God? It's a city smothered in idols. That's what Paul saw. He saw to the spiritual matter. But he didn't just observe it. He also felt something in his heart, which leads us to the second sub-point, what Paul felt. We read in this specific verse, verse 16, what he did feel, just to remind you. And now let, me, let me go back a bit. So just in terms of, of church life, I feel like many of us feel like, no, 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 in church life we pass this idolatry thing and we worship Jesus, which is right and good. But I just want to point out a warning about our attitude of who's the, 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 this Jesus that we are worshiping. What many people have done, if they've, they've taken the teachings of Jesus and they've cut away everything that they find offensive, everything that they find difficult, and they've chiseled for themselves their own personal Jesus that reflects themselves and that just affirms exactly who they are. That is not Jesus. That's an idol that you've given the name Jesus. Professor Des Henry, he says it this way. If your Jesus is mainly shaped by your opinions, preferences, and tolerances, then you have an idol named Jesus. 
The real Jesus shapes us, not the other way around. I wonder if Jesus challenges you, if he calls you into places that are very uncomfortable, and if he's radical to you. If he isn't, you might be into idolatry, but very church, churchianity idolatry. I think the problem doesn't lie anywhere except our heart is prone to have to worship something. And so we're prone to idolatry. The French reformer John Calvin said, the human heart is an idol factory. We tend to pump out idols. That's the pastime of the fallen nature of mankind. When 2020 came around, many of us made life adjustments and we realized we've actually been living enslaved to certain ways of life. And we recognized idols in our lives, busyness, perhaps, wara wara. Then we made adjustments. We said, thank goodness for COVID, you know, for all the bad that it's had, you know, it's really helped me to get my priorities straight. Val Mensa, here we are in 2021. And 20, where, here we are in another year. <laughs> Did I say the right year last gathering? Did I say it wrong twice? Right, I'm stuck in last year. Well, here we are in some unknown year, 2022. The easing of restrictions has happened. But what I see is the same falling back into the same habits that happened before. So the problem wasn't conditions. The problem was our heart. Our heart is an idol factory. And this is the issue. And so what Paul feels when he looks at people and he sees these people's hearts are in a dangerous place. This is where we get to verse 16. What he felt. Now Paul was waiting for them at Athens and his spirit was provoked within him. Because he saw the city was full of idols. He was emotionally moved on two accounts. Number one, he knows God is the only one who deserves praise and honor and worship. And it's insulting to see shrines to Athena and other arbitrary gods, knowing that they don't deserve this. God, he alone deserves this, the living God. That's the one thing that his heart is provoked on. But another thing is he's thinking about the people. And he's like understanding these guys are dying. They're perishing with religion, and that isn't God's heart for them. God wants relationship with them. God wants to save them. God wants to draw them into a real relationship with the living God, and his heart bleeds for them. I wonder if your heart bleeds for people caught in these snares. So that's what Paul saw. That's what he felt, but he didn't just go and pray. He went and spoke to the people. So we get to heading number three, what Paul did. So verse 17, we're picking up. So... This is what Paul did. He reasoned in the synagogue first with the Jews and the devout people. And then he went to the marketplace every day to those who happened to be there. Can you imagine you in the marketplace? You want to buy fruit. Here comes Polis. He wants to reason with you. Now, this guy's pretty clever. If you were here a few weeks ago when I preached about him, he was pretty clever. Imagine if you were reasoned with in the marketplace when all you wanted was six eggs and a, and a loaf of bread. But this is what we see in the Bible, is that people don't draw a sacred secular divide and keep religion in the corner. They bring it in the forefront because they can never betray who they are. They found in Christ, they're never going to be betraying that. And so they find themselves reasoning, even in, this, even in the streets, about these things. And when he reasons in the streets, it's every day, whoever happened to be there. The Aramemensa, here we go, Paul's on them. But now he encounters some philosophers, because this is the center of philosophy. So we read in verse 18. Then certain Epicureans and Stoic philosophers encountered him. 
So if you're in uh, the institute, you are an expert on philosophy now, as we're doing apologetics. Uh, so you will know all about this. The Epicureans. This has not got to do with manicures. This has not got to do with cosmetics. Okay? The Epicureans, uh, if you don't know who they are, these were guys that believed that the physical body and soul were not eternal, that they will, they will disappear. Basically, we have a lot of people that have that scientific worldview today and that you cease to be. They believed that they were gods, but they don't worry what you do. So there's no God to account for anything. The famous saying in Epicurean philosophy is this. There is nothing to fear in God, and there is nothing to feel in death. So they had a way of living that said, listen, you're going to die. You're going to be no more. Your life is short. Live your best life now. I wonder if that sounds familiar to a modern worldview. We just call it YOLO. You only live once. We don't have fancy words like Epicurean outlooks. We just say YOLO. But can I tell you, that is not a modern worldview, YOLO, you only live once. It's been around thousand BC. This is the oldest worldview ever, which says there is no God. We're all going to die, so live all your luxuries now. The pursuit of pleasure is their God. That in philosophy is called hedonism, the pursuit of pleasure at all costs. But what I learned in philosophy is hedonism never pays off. The hedonistic paradox, well known, it says this. If you seek physical pleasure as the single purpose of your life and you fail to achieve it, you'll be constantly frustrated. But on the other hand, if you search for physical pleasure and achieve it, you'll be bored. That's even what we see with celebrities that said that they had all sorts of goals and once achieving all of them, they still feel, felt empty inside. Hedonism talks a big game. Hedonism doesn't pay off at all. Epicureans, YOLO, absolute pit. Doesn't help anybody feel fulfilled. The second group he encountered were Stoics. Stoics were guys that believed life will go badly. It's just fatalistically determined. And whatever happens, you have a stiff upper lip. You don't let anything affect you because that's all that we can change is how we react. And so we see lots of Instagrams about that today. Lots of people talking a big game about whatever happens, no one can steal my happiness. Stoicism, stiff upper lip. Famously recorded in this poem that we heard in the Mediba movie um, called Invictus, the ending goes like this. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Absolute drivel. Paul's about to lay it flat that this is not the case. You are not the master of your fate. You are not the captain of your soul. And it matters how charged the scroll. So on the one hand, we've got people that say, if it feels good, you must do it because there's no consequences. And another group that says, listen, if it's really bad, don't worry about it. Just grin and bear it. And Paul is about to speak to these guys, but they don't think much of what he has to say. We read in verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? So they've got their philosophical hierarchy. And they're very snobbish. And they know all the different philosophies. And they're like, what does this babbler have to say? It is a word that connotated of um, gutter sparrows that would pick up little stuff in the gutters and would paste together messy nests for themselves. And what they're saying is this guy takes a little bit of religion, takes a little bit of philosophy, peck, 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 like a little sparrow, slaps it all together and then calls himself wise. He's a babbler. So we're about to see what Paul has to say 
to that. But what they do is they escalate matters. They take him to the highest court in the area. So we read in verse 19. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, what is this new teaching that you are presenting? Now, just to give you guys some context here. The Areopagus, in every ancient Greek city, they had a temple to the God of that city that was raised up on the Areopagus, the highest place in the city. I think we have a picture of that. It's come up behind me. And they were in high places because they believed if it's higher to the sky, it's higher to closer to God. So they had the Areopagus. And there they had in Athens a great statue to Ares. To Ares and they would have trials there. And people would have the chance to state their case. Present your philosophy. And these dialogues would last two to three hours. But don't worry. I'm not going to be here explaining it for two to three hours. But Paul, just while we at it, one time he preached so long that a guy fell out of a window and died. And then he resurrected him. You can read about it in the book of Acts. He resurrected him. And then it says he continued to preach with many words. <laughs> Laura always says, this is James. He resurrected a guy just like, I was not finished. said, this is the plan. Wherever the sheep go and lie down, whatever gods, those gods we will sacrifice to because we'll know those are the ones that we upset. Now, the chances of a sheep lying next to a god was high because there were hundreds of gods all around Athens. But yet, yeah, the Scarpies, not, not actually cooperating at all. Like a good Karua bunch of Scarpies, absolutely disregarding and avoiding every single God and lying down in all the places where there's no gods, just leaving them completely flabbergasted. Like, oh, Flip, what are we going to do now? That cost us like a hundred sheep and we still don't know who it is. Now, what they did is all these spots where these scarpies were congregating, they erected these altars and they said to the unknown God. And this was to say that the God that we have upset is not one that we will know yet. We are still going to meet him one day, and one day someone will introduce us to the unknown God. You can actually see this picture behind me of um, an inscription dragged by archaeologists. It says there, to the unknown God. 
There are many of these all over Athens. So Paul says, I see you're very religious, boys. I see you've got all these inscriptions, but I want to tell you, I see you worship an unknown God as well. I'm going to introduce you to the unknown God. I am the messenger that you were promised. I've come to explain him to you. So then we get to heading number three, the living God. Not like the dead gods that they had worshipped, but the true living God. What I'm going to do here is I'm going to give you the point, then I'm going to give you the verse that Paul said, then I'm going to explain it, and then I'm going to give you an application for each one. So the first thing that Paul says in his epic preach, he says that God is the creator. This is the starting point that Paul picks up on. It says in verse 24, then God made the whole Sorry, he's talking about the unknown God, the God who made the whole world and everything in it. Being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man. See, he goes for the jugular straight off the bat. These guys are making temples, making shrines, thinking they're doing very well. He says, listen, God, there's not many gods. There's one God and he's alive. And guess what? He's not going to be contained by your little temple or your little shrine. He's a huge God. This is the place where he begins. Genesis 1. Isaiah 66 says it this way. Thus says the Lord, heaven, that's my throne. Earth, that's just my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand have made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. God cannot be housed by a temple or shrine. It says, uh, in John Calvin said, there's no thing in the world that can manifest the glory of God that is apart from Jesus. Nothing that we make can manifest it. When Solomon's temple was built, amazing statement in 1 Kings. This is the, the Solomon, this is the great temple of God. But this is the statement. But will God indeed dwell here on earth? Behold, heaven and highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. God can't be contained by shrines or temples. In fact, one persecuted Christian I read on open house, ugh, open house, open doors. He said when his, there was threats that his church would be burnt down, he said, you can pull down our steeples, but you can't pull down the stars because he understood the God of heaven and earth is not contained in buildings. And this is the first place he begins with the people of Athens. You know, in um, our day, when we look at products, we see a lot of made in China. It's probably on those Lego pieces, made in China. I even found a South African shirt, made in China. Stamped everywhere, made in China. Well, the lesson here is everything in the world made by God. It bears his stamp. And these guys in Athens, they were into lots of gods. A God of business, a God over the sea, a God over the sun. And Paul says, let me start with this. There's one God, and he's the maker of heaven and earth. Don't think you can contain him in a shrine or a temple. Second thing he says is that God is the sustainer of life. Verse 25, it says, yeah, he doesn't stay in temples, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So firstly, Mensa, we don't contribute to God's well-being. 
He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He's sufficient. He's eternal. He's complete. He is perfect. He is not served by human hands. Pastor John Piper says it this way. God has no need for us to meet. No. He glorifies himself in meeting our needs. That's the God that we serve. He doesn't need anything, but he delights to meet our needs. That's the first thing. He's not served by human hands. But the second thing is that he gives life to all that is living. Colossians 1, speaking about Jesus, it says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In Jesus, all things hold together. If his hand was not holding the universe together, we would spin out of orbit. The axis at its exact angle that the earth has to be would not be. You would implode. I would implode. The sun wouldn't be at the exact angle. God is sustaining life right now. He didn't just wind up a clock and now we're on auto magic. No, we're not an automated earth. He is sustaining everyone with life right now. Right now, the fact that you're breathing is a testament to the fact that Jesus is alive because he sustains your life. So the application is this, that you can't, if we have breath in our lungs, it's because God put it there for us to worship him. So it's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. We pour out our praise. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord because God put it in you to worship him. Should we take breath that God gives us for him and then use it for ourselves? No, we worship him with all of our being. So he is the sustainer of life, but also he's the ruler of nations. Subpoint number three. We've got this in verse 26. God also made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the, the face of the earth. Listen to this. Having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. How incredible is that, that God is sovereign over history and over geography, that God has decided you are not going to be born when in some other era he'd specifically said for this era and this time, I've made you born. And he chose where you were going to be born in the family that you're going to be born and the place where you would grow up. He has allotted the times and boundaries of people's dwelling. So the application is you're not here by mistake. You're not here because you were looking for a job or because of real estate prices. Where you live and who your family is, is allotted by God. And he chose it and it's not random. He fashioned it into the fabric of his plans for mankind. It is deliberate that you here in Johannesburg, that God intended for you to be a witness of the living God to your family, to in your street, in your business, where you are, you are allotted by God. It didn't fall upon there by some randomness. We are here in City Green. City Hope Church. Behind us is a nice shrine to sex. The Loveland sign just over here. Modern day, God of lust. Just wrapped a bit differently. A signage instead of a shrine. But we here as a witness. This is where we've been allotted to be. And you are here for a real purpose. And so seek God in that. That's an application. So we've been talking about God is great because he's, he's the creator, he's the sustainer, he's the God of, of history and geography, but he's also near. So he hits one philosophy that believes God is small and you can manipulate him, smashes it. Next, he's going to hit this thing that God is distant. He's like, no, God is near. Verse 27. He said that he allotted, God allotted where we would stay. Why? 
that they should seek God and perhaps pray towards Him and find Him. Yet, He's actually not far from each one of us. So this goes against the Epicureans that thought that God is distant. Paul teaches, no, no, God is not far from any one of us. He says, He made us to feel our way towards Him. In fact, James Boyce is a, a, a Greek expert, and he says about this, because it's a unique word that's used feel here. He says it's referring to Homer, you know, the great writings of Homer, when he had a cyclops that was blinded and felt his way blindly through a cave trying to find the entrance. But what we have is a God that made himself known to us when we were spiritually blind. Hallelujah. God be praised. There's a great quote by Daniel DeHaan. He says this in his poem. Man gropes his way through life's dark maze. To God's unknown, he often prays. Until one day he meets God's son. At last, he's found the living one. It's great. So what we have in application is if God is not far, but he is near, let us pray like that is true. He is mighty. He is in heaven. But he is also close to us. He is our father. He is involved. He's closer to us than we can imagine. So if that is true, we can seek, we can knock, we can find. Let's pray to God relentlessly. Since he seems to be close to us and involved. In, even though he's so big, he's involved in things so small. Even just or your day tomorrow. That's something that God would care to hear about. And then leading on to the next thing Paul proclaims to the Athenians. He said, God is our father. He says in Acts 17, verse 28 to 29, for in him, that's referring to God, for in God, we live and we move and we have our being. Even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image that can be formed by the art of the imagination of man. So if in God we live and move and have our being, are we the master of our fate? Are we the captain of our soul? Far from it. In God we live and move and have our being. It means that we've got to live a life that's grounded in God. We weren't just created by God, He continues. Within Him we live and move and have our being. So that means that tomorrow is in the hands of God. There's a comfort that we can know that God will be no less involved in my life and no less powerful when I'm 85 as when I'm 25 because I still live in Him. I still move in Him. I still have my being in Him. All the changes of my life, I still go ahead and I look at the fact that God is faithful. Great is your faithfulness to me. We look at Vaughan's life. Here he is, 50 years old, hand up in church, praising God. In Him, in God, Vaughan has lived. He has moved and he has had his being from when he was a young man. From when he was at doors, nightclub, evangelizing, through to today, wonderful family, hasn't changed. God can't change. He remains the same. Yesterday, today, forever. The Alpha and the Omega. The one who was and is and is to come. In him we live and move and have our being, so take heart. God is in control and he cares. And the last thing Paul says is that God is the judge and the resurrection. He says here in verse something, 30, that the times of ignorance God overlooked. So that is saying the ignorance that they're worshiping idols, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now 
he commands people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by the raising of him from the dead. Previously, God had patience for the people worshiping their various idols. But now with the coming of Jesus, there's a turning point. He says, now I command people everywhere to repent. Because God has fixed in his calendar the day of judgment. He has it fixed and he has appointed someone. Who has he appointed? His son. His son will be the judge. And it's fixed in the calendar. And this is bad news for some. But it's not bad news for those who obey this command to repent. Because those who repent, we read in Acts 3, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. I notice the instruction isn't God is inviting you into a relationship today. Notice the word of the evangelist. It's not an invitation. It's a command. God says, repent. It's a divine subpoena. But what happens when we do repent? The same judge that would judge us is the one who saves us. Because God has so seen fit, even though we deserve the full wrath that should come upon us for not worshiping him, but worshiping ourselves with our desires, with our things that make us happy. We've made ourselves gods and we fashioned into things that we want to worship. And so we deserve just punishment. But God is both a judge and he's a redeemer because he has chosen to throw justice upon his own son, his boy. It's Father's Day today. Can you imagine as a father giving your only boy to be slaughtered that he didn't deserve? On Father's Day, it's good for us to remember the good, good father in heaven. How is he a good father to us? He's a good father to us in that he sent his son to be sacrificed, slaughtered on the hill outside of Jerusalem. For people like Athenians that worshipped this God, that God, this God, that God, and people like you and me and Joseph that worshipped sex, money, power, materialism. He had done this. We have a good father because he sent his son. And it says in Isaiah that he was pleased and he poured out his wrath on his own boy. So that anyone who repents and turns to God, that they will be spared of this judgment. That's the kind of God we serve. And if we overemphasize he's just a judge, all we have is a God of justice. But if we don't emphasize this God of, of redemption, we miss mercy. He is a God of justice. He will never let go. But he's a God of mercy, and he'll never let go of that. And only in this religious claim of Christianity do you still have a just God who's merciful. It's a unique claim, and it's God alone. And so, friends, what should we say to all these things? In conclusion, it's supposed to be my words I'm supposed to say. We must bow the knee before the King of Kings. It's not an invitation. It's a divine subpoena from God. Because there's a day when we all will stand before the white throne and the books will be opened. To Buddha, Mother Teresa, Vladimir Putin, no one escapes it. Except for those that are found in Christ. And this is the good news of Jesus that he faced eternal judgment on our behalf. The one that we were talking about, the one who created the world, the one who holds the world together, the one who's the God over 
everything, history, geography, the one who is near to us, the one who gives us breath in our lungs. He's the one who, though he was so enormously big, came in the form of man and was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross for you and me. The great, great grace of God can never be underestimated. This is an immense God. How can you compare this God to anything else? How can you stand some idol next to God? It's absolutely ridiculous. There's no one like him. So will you stand with me? Let's get into a heart of response as we reflect on this. We still live in Athens. We just call it Josie. We still have people worshiping all the same gods, the God of the God Athene, the God of intellect. We still have people worshiping Demeter, the God of ecology, Zeus, the God of power. We still have people worshiping the God of lust. Everywhere we go, we're still encountering the same thing that Athens did then. Epicureans, materialists, hedonists. Things have not changed. But is your spirit provoked within you to say, but God deserves worship and Him alone? How can we stand by while people worship something dead when there's the living God? Will we reason with them in the marketplace? Will we say, I have come to introduce you to the living God? Are we going to be the type of people that will stand up and say, I want you to know who God is? And just bring the little bit that you know to bear. But the message outwardly must first be inward. Some of us today need to cast down our crowns and we need to throw down our idols. And we need to let God smash them. We need to be a people that every day cast down our crowns, cast down our idols. Less of me, Lord, more of you. And we pick up and we say, Lord, I worship you and you alone. It's a lifestyle. On the last day, those that raise themselves up will be cast down. But those that bow before the Father will be raised up on the last day in the resurrection. And so let's live a lifestyle of bowing before God and letting Him raise us up. That's the lifestyle of a Christian. Nothing can compare to God. Only He deserves all this praise. And so we're going to sing a song that says, You are the Lord Almighty, outshining all the stars in glory. Nothing else compares. We're going to sing a song about the immense love of God and that nothing compares. And as we do that, let's cast down our idols, cast down our crowns and say, I only worship God, the living God, because only He's worthy, the maker of heaven and earth. Nothing compares to Him. He stands alone in majesty. And as we live a life of worship, we're not just singing words, we are throwing idols down as we look at Jesus. We look full in His wonderful face and the things of the earth grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. So let's worship Him this morning.